Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. All right, before we get underway, I have a few announcements. First, I wanted to give you a heads up that it looks like we're going to be doing a giveaway on Facebook in a few weeks. I'll have more details soon, but I wanted to let you know in advance. So if you're interested in free stuff, and who isn't interested in free stuff, you might want to head over to our Facebook community, facebook.com slash British History, and click the like button so you'll be kept up to date on what's going on. And with a bit of luck, you might have free stuff coming your way in the future. Was that mysterious enough for you? I think I'm getting the hang of this vague booking thing. Additionally, members, I have a few episodes in production for you, so make sure you keep an eye on the feed because you should be seeing some new stuff popping up really soon, or depending on when you're listening to this, it might already be there. Also, make sure that your spam filters accept emails from the British History Podcast at gmail.com because I'll be changing the password very soon and you'll want to make sure you get that email. Finally, you might have noticed that there was no episode last week. Well, that's because I was pretty horrendously sick, so I apologize for that. But anyway, we have a story to tell today. In the last several episodes, we've been speaking about religion. We've spoken about the paganism that existed on the island, the Christians that lived there, the reasons why individuals and rulers might want to convert, and why they might not want to convert, and of course, we've spoken about what the church in Rome was up to and what their plans were. So we know that the church wanted to extend its control over Britain, and now it felt that it had a good opportunity to do so, since they had an opening with the most powerful king in southern Britain, who also happened to have ties with the Frankish courts through marriage, and those ties to the Frankish courts were important because the Franks were Christian. So the time to strike was now. We've also learned how that while most of Eastern Britain was pagan, and we have tantalizingly few details on exactly how that paganism was practiced, Christianity was not unknown. And despite the popular mythology, Anglo-Saxon Britain was awash in Christianity long before the Pope decided to send an envoy to the island. Wales, Scotland, Ireland, the Britons who lived within Anglo-Saxon Britain, there were Christians all over the place. Despite the mission that the Pope sent to Britain, this region was not as deeply pagan as the myths would have us believe. And when it comes right down to it, they were just kind of myths. Basically, Britain was not as wild and woolly and intensely pagan as we might have been told in school. So that's pretty much what we've covered. And then we hit the pause button right as Augustine was traveling through less than perfectly safe territory with letters from the Pope in hand on his way to Kent with a whole posse of missionaries, some of whom had the heebie-jeebies about this strange island that had a history of giving Rome a headache. So why don't we pick up the story right there? Now, while the missionaries' fears were somewhat reasonable, the region that Augustine was traveling to wasn't as bad as it could have been. It actually would have been something of a comfort to him, as he was already accustomed to traveling through Frankish territories by this point. And Kent, despite being separated from Francia by the Channel, was probably at least a little Frankish in nature. We've spoken in prior episodes about how influential the Franks were on Kentish fashion and culture, but you also have the fact that the King of Kent, our friend Ethelbert, the same man who attacked Chalin of Wessex in his youth, had married a Frankish princess, a lovely lady by the name of Bertha, who was the daughter of Cheribert, King of Paris. And part of the agreement for the marriage was that she was allowed to bring her bishop with her. 
Sure, it looks like the bishop wasn't very successful at converting the population at large. But at least Augustine and friends knew that they weren't going in totally blind. I mean, Bertha and her bishop even restored a church, which was probably St. Martin's. So all in all, Kent wasn't a terrible place to go if you were a Christian missionary who had to go to Britain. And they did. So at the very least, Queen Bertha of Kent and Bishop Leohard would have been friendly faces upon Augustine's arrival. And frankly, King Ethelbert probably would have been a friendly face as well, given his ties to the Frankish kingdoms, and of course, the Frankish kingdom's ties to the church. I mean, when it comes down to it, there just aren't too many degrees of separation there. And on top of all of that, the reality is that the marriage between Ethelbert and Bertha was not something that would have existed on equal terms. Kent was small, as was Ethelbert's dynasty. Not so for Bertha. The Franks commanded a great deal of respect, as did their dynasty, the Merovingians. I mean, Bertha was the great-granddaughter of Clovis. This was a very important family in continental Europe, and everybody knew it. So it's incredibly unlikely that King Ethelbert would have been viewed as anything more than an underking to the Franks. And actually, Procopius believed that Kent was under the influence of the Franks, so that could well have been the case, at least informally. So looking at everything, King Ethelbert might have been powerful in southern Britain, more powerful than any of the other kings if we believe Bede. But that was still a relative thing. And across the channel, there were far greater powers to contend to, who might have been more than a little persuasive to the small Anglo-Saxon kingdom. And given that the Frankish kingdoms were Christian, that level of influence was probably a great deal of comfort to Augustine, and probably held some amount of sway over this Anglo-Saxon king that he was about to meet. And honestly, the people of Kent were probably surprisingly civilized when viewed with continental eyes, at least in comparison with the other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. For example, they had retained the Roman name, for the most part, and Canterbury, the old Roman city, was probably still the center of authority, according to Campbell. And that connection to the old Roman order probably didn't go unnoticed, especially when compared to the neighboring pagan Anglo-Saxon kingdoms that were just across the marshes to the west, who were much more staunchly Germanic. And like we have spoken about many times, it probably also helped, that they looked rather Frankish, at least in fashion and culture. So while things might have seemed daunting to Augustine and his retinue, the reality is that he was entering a region that had already been softened up quite a bit by cultural drift. Christianity might not have been accepted by the aristocracy in Kent, but it was not unknown, nor does it appear to have been approached with hostility. So with all that in mind, Augustine and his nearly 40 missionaries, along with Frankish interpreters, arrived in Kent in 597. We're told that Augustine told the king that they had come from Rome and brought a joyous message of the afterlife, and that, in response, King Ethelbert allowed them to land and rest while he decided what to do with them. And we're told that, although he was familiar with Christianity, he was a bit concerned that they might cast some sort of spell upon him. So he took precautions to defend against this by refusing to allow them to visit him in a house. Now to me, this sounds a bit like the old superstition of never inviting a vampire into your home, lest he begin to sparkle. Anyway, rather than spells, Augustine and his posse had a banner with a silver cross, and they had chants and prayers. They probably also had the assistance of the not insubstantial fact that King Ethelbert probably wanted the Franks to be allies rather than enemies. Or at the very least, 
probably wanted access to what the church had to offer in order to maintain his power base in southern Britain. So while they didn't have spells, they still did have some rather powerful, you know, powers on their side. Yet, according to Bede, Ethelbert wasn't immediately receptive to Augustine's message, despite the incentives to convert. We're told that he said, quote, Your words and promises are fair, but because they are new to us and of uncertain import, I cannot consent to them so far as to forsake that which I have so long observed with the whole English nation. But because you are come far as strangers into my kingdom, and, as I conceive, are desirous to impart upon us those things which you believe are true and most beneficial, we desire not to harm you, but will give you favorable entertainment and take care to supply you with all things necessary to your sustenance. Nor do we forbid you to preach and gain as many as you can to your religion. End quote. Now, Bede wasn't there, and he was writing much later, but his source could be accurate. Or it might have been filling in the details to make for a better story. Or he, or his source, could be trying to account for why Augustine wasn't immediately successful at converting the king. But the fact of the matter is that it seems like King Ethelbert just wasn't initially interested in conversion. And we can surmise that not just because of what Bede says, but also because Queen Bertha's chaplain, Bishop Leohard, apparently was unsuccessful at converting the Kentish king. And, of course, that bishop had been there as long as Bertha though it does require that we believe Bede and his assertion that King Ethelbert needed to be converted in the first place. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But moving forward with the story, for whatever reason, King Ethelbert wasn't immediately swept up in Christian fervor. Yet despite that, we're told that he allowed Augustine and his crew to stay in Canterbury, and even gave them permission to preach. That's an interesting move, isn't it? The king isn't overly impressed by the religion. And even though the Franks had converted, and oh my god were those Franks ever fashionable to the people of Kent, and even though the Pope himself reached out to him via Augustine, we still have a king who is reluctant to convert. It makes you think that he had no interest in switching religions whatsoever, doesn't it? But if that's the case, then why let them stay in what was ostensibly the capital of his kingdom? And why let them preach? Now I can give you what immediately jumps out to me. But we've been talking about motivations and stuff for pretty much most of this show. And we've been investigating religious politics for the last month. So what do you think the king might have been up to there? Sure, he doesn't want to make an enemy out of the Franks. And he probably also didn't want to irritate his wife. But simply letting Augustine stay while forbidding him to preach could avoid any hurt feelings. So why go the extra mile? Well, by allowing them to preach, I think there's a rather shrewd political move that's being made here. Conversion was serious business, and actually rather dangerous. As we go forward, we're going to see quite a lot of blood being shed in both directions over the conversion to and from Christianity. Switching gods, and ostensibly telling your subjects that they probably had to switch gods as well, wasn't a decision to be made lightly, nor to be made without substantial body armor and guards around you. And yet that was the situation the king found himself in. So why not test the waters? The Britons might believe in this Christ. But what about the elite Anglo-Saxon aristocracy? Will they believe? After all, they were the ones most likely to stab King Ethelbert in the back. So which way would they be leaning? Even if King Ethelbert had a moment of faith, 
and truly converted for spiritual reasons. You might still have wanted to politically test the waters before coming out in public, so to speak. And that might have been what the king had in mind. I mean, the king very well could have found himself in what initially seemed like a no-win situation, and was just trying to navigate through it. He didn't want to make an enemy out of the Franks by refusing to convert, but he also didn't want to make enemies out of the Thanes by converting to a foreign religion and forcing them to as well. If he annoyed either group, his life expectancy would probably shorten substantially. But if he had a third party who tried to convert the Thanes, thereby taking most of the risks of violent retribution upon their backs, and reading between the lines, it sounds like some of the missionaries might have suffered and died during their preaching. Well, by doing that, Ethelbert could hopefully get the in-crowd to convert, all while staying out of the crossfire. And naturally, by offering fabulous cash and prizes for conversion, he could also keep the Franks in the church happy because he was still being supportive while also keeping his head down. All in all, it's not a terrible plan. So, Augustine and his nearly 40 missionaries, and of course their Frankish interpreters, set about their work and established their primary area of worship at St. Martin's. And we're told that they prayed, held watches, fasted, set aside worldly things, and lived a rather apostolic and ascetic way of life. All the while, they preached to any who would listen, and made sure they lived the lessons that they were preaching. They followed the rules that they taught, they only ate what was necessary, and they demonstrated that they were willing to suffer and die for their message. And it's that last part that makes me think that not everyone in Kent was excited about this new religion. But, in response to seeing this, the people of Kent began to convert and be baptized. According to Bede, miracles flourished along with the converts. And as a result, the flock grew in size. And upon seeing this, King Ethelbert rejoiced and favored the Christians in his community. But he didn't force any among him to convert. He just rewarded the ones who did. And you might be asking, so at this point, had Ethelbert converted? Well, it isn't clear. Some traditions hold that it was on June 1st, 597, that he converted. But that is not from a completely reliable source. What we can be sure of is that King Ethelbert converted by 601. We know this because the Pope referred to him as a Christian king in that year. But until that point, was he still pagan and just nudging his court to convert through positive reinforcement? Well, we just don't know. But once again, in Bede's account, we see what a shrewd king Ethelbert was. I mean, everything that he's doing is really smart. Now, Bede paints it as Ethelbert accepting that someone can only convert freely and voluntarily. But I really wonder if he's just trying to spin the reality of the situation and make it look a lot more godly. And that the truth of the situation is that Ethelbert didn't want to die, and that if he started forcing conversions, he could find himself at the wrong end of a knife being wielded by an angry pagan zealot. But at the same time, he needed to make the Franks and the Roman church happy. So how was he going to lead people to convert? Well, he could always incentivize conversion, which is what it seems like Bede says the king was doing by treating the Christian converts with, quote, great affection, end quote. Basically, it's the same stuff that Constantine was doing, right? Do you want fabulous cash and prizes and tax breaks? Cool. Convert. Now, something that we should keep in mind when we look at this account is Bede's bias or at least the bias of its sources. We're given the impression that Ethelbert converted because of fervor, and that the politics were completely ignored. 
Further, his behavior, which seems rather tactical and brilliant, is often explained in terms of pure faith. So we should keep that in mind, but there's also an unseen bias on top of all that. Bede was telling a story of conversion. He was telling a heroic story that involved a saint. So he gives the impression of pagan domination and divine providence. Now we've already covered the reality of the Pope's decision to launch the envoy and compared it with the story that Bede told us, where the Pope seemed like a bad Saturday night comic. But beyond that, there's the very real possibility that there was no conversion of King Ethelbert by Augustine. I mean, it's entirely possible that King Ethelbert was already converted. Bishop Leohard was operating under the auspices of Queen Bertha, and the king was probably already under an enormous amount of pressure to convert, both from within his own household as well as from across the channel. Hell, several scholars have suggested that conversion might have been a condition placed upon his marriage. Further, even if it wasn't a condition, and he just had a moment of faith and decided to convert for spiritual reasons, he had plenty of opportunities to do that prior to Augustine's arrival. He had a bishop in his house. And there are little crumbs that raise doubts to the conversion story, such as Ethelbert reportedly voicing that he would be open to missionaries arriving prior to the Pope even sending an envoy. I mean, depending on the source, it looks like he was asking for missionaries. And everything that we're told about Ethelbert gives the impression that this man was clever. So, if he had already converted, he was probably all too aware of how dangerous being in a religious minority in Anglo-Saxon Britain was. And he might want to fix that. Things like this have some scholars asking the question of whether or not Augustine actually converted him. Or if he arrived and already found a king that had been converted. After all, we don't have any specific date or details of Ethelbert's conversion. So, like with everything else, we need to consider the source when we hear this story. But at the very least, we can be sure that the religious climate was favorable for King Ethelbert to be openly Christian by 601, which is when Pope Gregory wrote to him. So here we are at 601, and we have our first Christian king of England. But I'm sure that won't have too much of an impact on our story. It's just religion, right? Alright, let's end this episode with a listener question. So Ryan asks, Hey Jamie, I just started listening to the BHP a few months ago and have spent the summer catching up. I wanted to let you know how much I enjoy your work. I was a history major as an undergraduate, and I'm currently enrolled in law school in New Orleans. Consequently, my favorite parts of the BHP are usually the sections that you preface by talking about how you researched or wrote a particular subject. Do you find yourself pivoting between your interest in history and your legal background when putting the podcast together, or do you find that the two disciplines meld together? Did you ever draw on your interest in history when you were working as an attorney? Well, when I was an attorney, all I did was live and breathe the law. I read constantly, but all the reading was legal in nature. So much so that when I wasn't working, I just didn't want to read at all which, incidentally, was a real bummer for me and indicative that law wasn't a good fit because I absolutely love to read. So unfortunately, unless I was doing legislative history, which I only had the opportunity to do twice, once for an appellate case, I really didn't have much time for history while I was an attorney. As for melding the two disciplines together, I find that the training law provided me in critical thinking, research, and communication has been invaluable for what I do now. But until we get to the foundations of English common law, there really just isn't much crossover for what I actually studied and worked on. 
So basically, the training has been incredibly useful, but the actual material I studied and practiced doesn't come into play all that much. Thanks for writing in. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash britishhistory. And we're on Twitter. You already know this, but I'm going to tell you again. We're at at BritishPodcast. And there's always the forums. You can join us at the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and click Get Involved and then click Forums. And we'll see you over there. All right, thanks for listening.